Welcome to the Doctority Canada Plastic Surgery Podcast. My name is Sheshav and in this series, I'll be speaking to plastic surgery residents and giving you an inside look at what it's like to train at their institutions. We'll discuss the logistics, the leadership, and the lifestyle of a plastics resident at their program. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Mike Carr, who is a second-year plastic surgery resident at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, British Columbia. Mike grew up in Vancouver, BC, and went on to complete his undergrad in biology and oceanography at UBC, followed by medical school also at that institution. His academic interests include hand surgery, trauma, and reconstruction. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Awesome. So I'd love to get started with a big picture overview of what it's like to train at your program. Well, I would say that we have a well-rounded plastic surgery training program that um, goes back at least 20 or 30 years. And so there's a lot of history and a lot of current staff are graduates of the program, which I think helps build a, a culture kind of founded in values that have existed in the program for quite a long time. And it's nice to have people from a different generation that are still participating in, in the training. Um, we're a very tight group. There's only about 13 or 12 residents currently. And so um, even in spite of COVID, I think uh, as a junior resident, we're a reasonably close group and we find ways to kind of maintain those connections. And I would say that, you know, first and foremost, aside from being kind of a tight professional group is that it's uh, it's a group that's very much about plastic surgery and everyone's passionate and, and there are a lot of sub-specialty interests amongst the trainees and the staff. But uh, I would say what draws a lot of the trainees to the group is seeing how much the staff people seem to enjoy their jobs. So how many residents do you guys take per year? Uh, we tend, uh, on average, we take two residents a year and in two of the current trainee years, there is a third international medical grad um, from overseas. On a separate note is every other year, our program enrolls a, a resident for the clinical investigator program spot. And so that is a academic kind of graduate studies type of extension that those residents have to take two years between their second and third year of training to do a graduate degree or if they, you know, if they have a master's, they probably extend it to a PhD, but two years of academic work where they still can take call, but it's largely focused on building uh, an academic kind of body of work. Can that be extended past two years to incorporate a larger graduate degree? No, I think it's, it's, it's meant to be confined within two years. I think that beyond two years, uh, you know, it would become more challenging to come back to clinical work and surgical training. You know, at my level, I feel like I've just started to pick up, um, some technical abilities and, you know, taking two years off now would, would be challenging, but I think taking more than two years off, it'd be a bit daunting to come back. So in the first two years of your plastic surgery residency, uh, how much plastics experience are you able to get? There has been a bit of curriculum change since even I went through, and I'm currently coming to the end of my second year. In my first year of plastics, I did one block at our main tertiary site on plastic surgery as a junior resident, and then I did one block as a burn resident, which is on service still. And then in second year, you do about half the year on service. I'd say about six blocks. And it's, it's still largely the same. We don't do burns as first-year residents anymore, so you're doing about 
two blocks and then six blocks in your first two years. And what's the experience like on the non-plastic services? In first year, we cover mostly other surgical services. So you do two months of orthopedics trauma, a month of general surgery trauma, neurosurgery, vascular surgery, ear, nose, and throat, like head and neck reconstruction, a month of CTU, a month of emergency medicine. And that's probably most of it, but it's mostly surgical aside from internal medicine and emergency medicine. And what are some of the different sites that you rotate through while you're on these different services? So as a first-year resident at UBC, you do actually all of these off-service rotations at our main tertiary center, which is Vancouver General Hospital, which is good because we spend probably, of all of our time on service, on plastic surgery service, the majority of that or the, the time that's spent at the same single center is mostly spent at VGH. So you get time and experience working with people who end up being colleagues and services that end up calling you for reconstructive needs. Um, yeah. And are there any fellows at your program? There are. I think in total we have four potential fellowship spots, uh, one in breast reconstruction, one in craniofacial reconstruction, uh, one in pediatrics, and I think there is a hand fellowship position as well. And it depends year to year on how many of those fellowship spots are filled. For example, right now we have a craniofacial fellow and a pediatric fellow, but there's no hand and there's no breast fellow. Um, but last year, I think there were three. And how has that impacted your training experience so far, or in general? In general, I would say as a junior resident, it's harder to comment on because there's not as much, I guess, potential conflict with my level of training and that which a fellow is expecting to kind of perform at. And if anything, you know, as a junior resident, I get sometimes get paired on call with a fellow and and obviously it's different working with a senior trainee who isn't as familiar with the system. And that brings, you know, I would say more responsibilities to the junior resident, which is a good thing and it can be more challenging at times, but overall it's just it's it's neither a positive nor a negative for the most part. Um, I think that like with the perception of having uh, fellows in your training program, as it would be in other programs, I think as a senior resident, there's potentially cases where uh, you might expect or want to be doing them and a fellow is present in the room and it becomes a bit of a reconciliation as to, to who gets to operate and 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 who's making the decision on, on whose case it might be. And I think at the end of the day, those things come down to what type of experience and skill set that fellow brings and how comfortable or confident they are with their level of training, and as well as the staff person who's leading the room and, and whether or not they want to delegate tasks. And I can't say that I have enough experience in those situations to say, you know, fellows really seem to impact the training here. I don't think that's the case because I think our program does a good job of selecting competent fellows. And I think our staff do a good job of appropriately delegating surgical tasks within operations to trainees at an appropriate level. So now I'm going to switch gears a bit and ask, what are the research opportunities like? Uh, research is, a, I would say, a fairly significant part of our program. And, you know, there are some trainees who are highly interested and motivated to do research. And then there are other trainees who it's it, probably less of a personal importance to. But the expectation in our program is that we have a plastic surgery 
resident research day where our threes and above have to present at every year and the junior residents are encouraged to. And then overall, aside from the research day, I think we the requirement is that you have had four separate projects throughout your training and, and they don't necessarily need to be published, but they need to be four distinct projects that are completed within the group. So with one or a variety of staff members. And we have protected, protected academic time every week and, and we have a program director who is a strong advocate for us to to have that protected time, which I think is really important because a, at the same time, a program who has expectations and demands for there to be an academic kind of research contribution from the residents, I think it's important that the program also provides that time. And so Dr. Seal's done a really good job of of helping us kind of have that protected time. And then there are, as, as I was saying with residents, you know, people have varied interests. There are staff with varied interests too. And, and there's certainly no lack of staff to go find, you know, support or kind of inspiration in terms of finding a new project with, but it, it certainly not. It certainly takes kind of effort on the part of the resident as well. And what kind of support is available for research within the department? So more from like a funding perspective. One really great thing that UBC has to offer is at our pediatrics group, there is a really uh, well-oiled kind of research team with a dedicated kind of research assistant, someone with like more than a decade of experience working with the staff group down there in, in, in like generating publications in peer-reviewed journals. And so they've got a very high throughput system when it comes to um, submitting for ethics and submitting for publication, uh, a team of experienced research people who um, really know the ins and outs of that kind of system very well. And so that's maybe, that's not so much to do with direct funding for residents, but it is very helpful. You know, they're connected with statisticians whom you would have to pay for otherwise. uh, And so that's, Certainly a bonus. Um, and in terms of funding, there is a, at least currently, there's a $5,000 allotment per year for academic expenses, um, allowing us to, at least in the context of going to conferences and workshops related to academic interests. And so I think that can be spread over as many as three separate kind of events per year. And so that's, I'd say that's fairly generous and allows people to go to things like the American Burn Association meeting or uh, the American Society for Plastic Surgery, anything that I think garners relevance to our field, the program is pretty readily supporting us to go do those things. And oftentimes you have to justify it with you're either presenting or you've submitted something um, to that event. And are there any limits on the support that you can get for research that you can think of? I don't think so. There are some residents in our group who, who... uh, you know, there's someone who graduated in the last couple of years who's very productive from a research point of view. And I think at the end of the day, the most limiting thing is, is going to be time that an individual trainee has to be able to put aside to do research. Um, I And that residence experience, I believe they got to their fifth year and they were studying. And I think they had to be personally cautioned, like maybe you shouldn't do so much research this year. You should focus on your exams. But this this specific resident had published, you know, more than like 10 publications. Don't cite me on number 10, but uh, this guy's <laughs> very productive in his research. And uh, and I don't think that the program, uh, in my perspective, it, would I ever imagine the program's limiting in terms of research. Uh, sometimes, 
when you're on rotations where the ac- the protected academic time conflicts with on-site clinical duties, that can be a little bit limiting. And, and it comes down to just communicating with your staff group and your, the people you work with on, on finding another part of the week when you can take that protected time. But I'd say our program overall is very supportive, at least in the, the two years I've been a part of the program, in terms of getting that half day of protected academic research time every week. So no, I don't think that there, in my mind, are any limitations to the support the program's given us. So switching gears again, uh, what's call like? So in our program, we have a junior-senior paired call system. And um, I know some places you do call over the entire weekend, like a whole Friday to Monday morning call. We don't. We do. So in a, in a given month on service, you will do anywhere from five to seven, maybe eight calls. It would be a lot, but I'd say five to seven in a month. And that would go for both the juniors and the seniors. And in our program, you're a junior through R1, R2, and most of R3. And then at the end of R3, you kind of have a transition period where you might do a block as a transitioning senior. Um, but you'd get placed on the call schedule as a senior at that part of your third year. And it's pretty variable. I'm sure it's like plastics in a lot of other places. Like our catchment area is probably not as large as Edmonton's and it's not as large as maybe Toronto's, but um, we're the one tertiary trauma center in BC. So we get um, all of the complex craniofacial burn, uh, most of the complex hand, and then also patients who are flown in with any type of high energy polytrauma that needs spine or neurosurgery. You know, we often are consulted on those patients as well um, if they have any reconstructive needs. But the call itself, yeah, it's variable. Um, we do tend to get a, lot of, get a lot of hand trauma in the eMERGE, and it is home call. You have to be within 15 minutes of the hospital. We don't take post-call days in our program. There is a push, you know, in the whole context of PAR-BC, and you guys have PARO in Ontario, of protecting residents from working, you know, an obscene call shift where you're in the hospital overnight. And should you be working the next day if you don't get four hours of sleep? And our program is very supportive. And there are obviously days where you have to kind of balance helping the team out versus making sure you've gotten enough sleep. And I think that both the staff group and the resident group recognize that sometimes there just are not enough hands to allow that, at least until a case starts. And so I'd say everyone is pretty content with the way things are right now, at least from my perspective. But there are no post-call days, which is maybe different than some programs. And what is the Allied Primary Health Practitioner support like? So in BC, we do not have uh, PAs, which I know is different than in some provinces. We have a great allied health care team, both on the inpatient ward as well as in our outpatient service. I'd say in our our inpatient ward for plastics, there's a reasonably high turnover, um, but there are always a number at least of quite experienced plastics nurses on who are familiar with plastic surgery pathology and flap checks. And we have a great burn unit with, I would say, very very experienced burn nurses who, um, many of whom are qualified like ICU nurses as well. Uh, And it makes makes providing burn care as a resident a lot easier because there is such a comprehensive allied health team. And then in the outpatient setting, we have a really good kind of hand clinic with uh, phenomenal hand therapists who do all of our splinting protocols and uh, active range of motion protocols, 
um, who work really closely with the hand surgeon group. And now I'm going to be switching gears again. What are the opportunities like uh, on elective rotations? I'm not going to be as well uh, kind of versed to be able to speak to electives because we haven't, I haven't done any yet in second year though in our first, so in our first uh, four years, we get one block of community every year, which is a, in a way it's an elective because we get the option of about five or six different sites in BC. And those would be within the lower mainland, which is kind of like the greater Vancouver area. There's, there's Richmond, North Vancouver or Lionsgate Hospital, Burnaby Hospital. Those are all three kind of community, like larger community-sized hospitals in the lower mainland. And then on Vancouver Island, which is not that far away, there's Nanaimo, which again is like, a, it's probably a level two or three trauma center. Um, it's still substantial in size. And then there's Campbell River, which is a small community with a large catchment area, but there's a number of plastic surgeons up there. And then there's Kelowna, which is in the Okanagan. It's got quite a number of plastic surgeons, and I think they do quite a lot of high-level plastic surgery there. But so in our first four years, we get a month at each of these sites, and it's up to our choosing to go to which one we'd like as long as it's available. And I think there I've missed out Royal Columbian or Surrey. And Royal Columbian and Surrey are also two other options. And then in third year, which is coming up for me, we get one elective block. And I think that as long as you can set an elective up with uh, a plastic surgery program, we are given the option to go to Canadian, American, or international programs to to do electives at. And then in our fourth year, I think we get another probably two months of elective. So you just mentioned this briefly about the, the global experience. Uh, are there opportunities for trips and things of that sort? In your senior years in our program, there is a probably 10-year history now of uh, a group of surgeons in our group going to Uganda, where they have partnered with one of the hospitals, I think in Kampala, and a plastic surgery training program there. And so every year, two or three staff and probably a resident will go and they'll spend two weeks operating and working with the plastic surgery group there doing pre-planned cases. We bring a lot of our own equipment and they're trying to foster a long-term kind of professional relationship. And I believe we have had one of the Ugandan trainees come over and work with us um, a few years ago. But so that, that opportunity exists for people in their fourth or fifth year. And you would go during either vacation time or on your elective time. And what's the cosmetic experience like? I think we have a very strong cosmetic program. It's two months in length and you get to spend time with a number of the staff plastic surgeons in their own private practices. And I think one of the things that makes it uh, such a great and unique experience is the longitudinal care uh, experience that you get from seeing patients in pre-op consultation all the way to post-op follow-up. And as trainees who haven't probably done uh, or spent any time in, in cosmetic practices before, the experience of actually meeting patients in consultation and talking to them about what their surgical goals are and coming to a agreement on what people would like or not like ha to have done, I think is an important experience that um, I've heard a lot of the senior trainees in our program speak very highly of. And do you guys have a resident cosmetic clinic? So what I've just talked to you about this experience of longitudinal care is often referred to as the resident cosmetic clinic, and it's exclusively 
for senior residents, and I believe that they will hold their own clinics under the most responsible physician, kind of under the guise or care of one of the staff consultant cosmetic surgeons. Um, but but the senior resident who's doing the resident cosmetic clinic will see, you know, four or five patients in a in a clinic, and you know, should they convert any of them to the OR, then they'll eventually see those patients in the OR at a later date. And is there experience with gender affirmation surgery? Yeah, currently Dr. Genoway is our kind of subspecialty gender reaffirmation surgeon who works out of Vancouver General, and um, she does mostly bottom surgery actually, so both um, male to female vaginoplasty as well as uh, female to male phalloplasty, and that's done in kind of collaboration with the urology service at BGH. But there are elective cases that happen not infrequently, um, and I believe that there's a moderate wait list. So I think that is a unique strength of our program is that we have an active gender reaffirmation program that does bottom surgery as well. And so to round this all off, are there any other perks about your program that you'd like to share? For me, I think the one of the greatest strengths of our program is are the people in it, both the resident group right now. It's very tight as well as the staff group. Um, the, the staff and the resident relationship, I would say, is fairly strong. And they we get treated with, I would say, a lot of just decent human respect. And I'm not sure if that, that should be something <laughs> surprising. But as a resident in our program, I would say we're treated very well. We have to work hard, but I think often that hard work is acknowledged and we're given a lot of really great opportunities professionally and as trainees to take part in some of these surgical experiences I've told you about. Unique things that our program has that might make us different from other programs are our cosmetic experience in our senior years. I think that is a very strong feature in our program. I would say our program director, Alex Seal, is he's been the program director for, for two years now. And I would just say he's a very strong advocate for the residents. He's very interested in making the program better than it is now by listening to both staff and residents and regularly trying to create discussion amongst our group as to how things can be improved. We have, and for example, we have a resident eMERGE clinic, which acts as kind of an overnight referral clinic for non-urgent and, you know, not needing to be immediately seen for possible OR. But it's an overflow clinic that allows the residents who are on call overnight to push consults to clinic mornings that are twice a week. And it just gives us a little bit of respite from going to have to see boxers, fractures, for example, that might come in at 2 a.m. And so that's something that's only been going on for about 18 months, but it's been a huge success. And it was originally a resident and program director kind of cultivated idea, but it's something that's come to fruition. So I think having a program that that actually cares about improving resident wellness and improving outcomes for patients at the end of the day is what drives what makes our program really good. And what area of plastic surgery would you say residents come out with the strongest experience in? I think our program does a really good job of probably touching on almost all subspecialties within plastics. Um, like I mentioned, we have gender reaffirmation. We've got a, a quite experienced pediatrics group. Uh, we've got a, we're a tertiary burn center. We've got a number of hand micro surgery fellowship trained surgeons. But I think all in all, we see a lot of trauma, I would say, is what our residency program gets a lot of exposure to. And so trauma-based reconstruction is 
probably where we develop our surgical skill set. And then, you know, as building on that, we get to do some experience, we get some experiences in elective surgery in some of those areas I've touched on, but I would say most of our surgical training is a trauma-based training, training program. And if you had to, how would you improve your program? I think at the end of the day, as a surgical trainee, you want to maximize your learning for the amount of time you're spending on site. And even as a junior resident, that to me would look like getting to spend more time in the operating room. And I think our senior residents spend almost all of their time in the operating room. But as you touched on earlier, we do have fellows and that's still a negotiation of time. And again, I don't think we have a significant problem with fellows and senior residents uh, having conflicts with who's getting the instruments, for example. But I think working at VGH, for example, which is our tertiary site, can be very busy. And like any tertiary hospital, you end up dealing with a lot of ward calls and patient disposition issues. We have a very complex patient population in Vancouver on the downtown east side who come with a lot of their own social issues and past traumas that can make patient disposition very difficult. And and that's part of our job as residents is to help these patients. And it often takes extra extra time and resource and energy. And, and that can take, that can sometimes feel like it takes away from what might otherwise feel like the kind of core skills you want to be learning as a surgical trainee. But I think that's going to be the same in any program is just trying to maximize uh, your effective learning time spent on site. But uh, there's nothing that I can really think of off the top of my head um, that I can say that for sure is something that our program needs to improve. So I think we've talked a little bit about it already in the past, but I'd like to transition and hear a little bit more about the department leadership. So your chair, uh, your chief and program directors. Uh, so Alex Seal is our program director. He is probably not quite 10 years into practice. Um, he is a peripheral nerve trained plastic surgeon. He did his fellowship, I believe, in uh, somewhere in California. And he's a he's a graduate of the UBC plastic surgery program. And I have nothing but good things to say about Dr. Seal. He works extremely hard. He's got his own private practice. Uh, as I said, he's a peripheral nerve kind of trauma surgeon. And he's the program director. And we just went through accreditation last year. And I think we were given the kind of top marks for accreditation and I, I don't think we're up for accreditation for another eight years so uh, I think reflecting on the program itself but also on Dr. Seals uh, you know I mean he put in a ton of work on on making sure that the program was reflected well in the eyes of the accreditors and as I had previously mentioned he's someone whose door is always open should you have any issues with stuff going on at work stuff going on in your personal life um, you just need to ask to clarify something, you know, he's somebody's available by phone, by email, which I think is really important. And as a resident makes me feel very supported. And then, uh, Dr. Peter Lennox is our division head. And I think he's almost been the division head for 10 years. And uh, I can't comment on the roles of the division head as much, but having worked with Dr. Lennox, he's a great guy. He's got great rapport with the house staff with his colleagues and with the residents. And I know that our our division of plastic surgery has quite regular staff kind of division meetings where they presumably talk about ongoing issues and things that need to be improved as well as resident evaluations. Um, but I can't really comment on that uh, leadership position as much. Any other notable faculty that you'd like to mention? 
Dr. Tony Papp is the uh, burn director, and he's been here for maybe not quite 20 years, but he's the only burn surgeon at, uh, at our hospital, uh, at VGH at least. And so he is someone who's on call 365 days a year, and he is extremely experienced in burn care, and he runs a tight ship and is awesome to work with. And as a junior resident, you know, it's one of the rotations where you get a lot of autonomy, both for inpatient ward management as well as operative kind of uh, operative experience and exposure. And he's someone who all of the residents are encouraged to do a research project with so that they can present at the um, American Burn Association meeting in their third year. So can you tell me about a time when you or another resident may have brought up an issue to the program leadership and how they responded? So I talked a little bit about the emergency referral resident clinic. And if you went back even three years, but certainly four years ago, our program didn't have anything like that. And so when you had consultations overnight for something like non-operative hand fractures or even uh, a, an operative closed hand fracture and you didn't have operating time the next day, there's really no urgent need for that patient to be seen that night. And like many surgical training programs, I mean, the residents in our program are busy. And that's not only from your clinical duties of having to be up at 5.30 in the morning, uh, but also your academic responsibilities of having to present at hand rounds or walk around rounds or academic half day, and then also personal lives on top of that. So the residents in the program are busy and plastics is, you know, plastics has a relatively high volume of eMERGE consults for things that don't necessarily need to be seen overnight. And I think in the context of a lot of resident wellness issues around training in Canadian medical programs, I think there was a perceived need for something to offload some of the overnight consults. And and if you look around the, the country, they're at a lot of the plastic surgery training programs. A lot of programs do have some type of emergency referral clinic or a, a resident clinic or a minor surgery unit where patients can be seen the next day or within 48 hours uh, instead of being seen in the emerge overnight. And it was recognized by residents in the program as recognized by our program director and and I think that there were people who also made arguments that there are good reasons to go see things overnight. Uh, primarily, you get more experience with your reductions. You see more x-rays if you're seeing them yourself when you're on call. And you might pick up on things that might have been, been missed otherwise. But I think uh, overall, program responded to the people internally who thought that this would be helpful for the trainees. And they, I think, most importantly, people at least were willing to listen and have a discussion about this. And, and now two, three years later, we have this, this resident emergency referral clinic that's still in its infancy, but it's working really well. We see probably 20 patients a week in it. And, um, I think it's overall contributed to a better quality of life for the residents who otherwise would have been going in overnight. And it makes for a more high yield learning experience when you go to a clinic that's two hours long and you see 10 patients that are all uh, direct referrals to plastics. Yeah, and on that note about talking about resident participation and decisions, uh, what kind of roles do residents play in department decision-making? So, for example, choosing new residents. You know, we, we partake in the selection or at least the assessment of applicants to our program insofar as 
uh, we get together as a resident group and everyone has the opportunity to speak up about um, people they work with, um, both positively and negatively. Obviously, if you've had a, a significant negative experience, I think it's important for anybody, uh, no matter their level of training, to have the opportunity to say, hey, listen, I work with so-and-so and I had this concerning experience. And at the end of every medical student's time in our program, the residents and staff who actually worked with them fill out a written-based evaluation, and that gets put into the, that applicant's file that's eventually reviewed. And then at the end of the day, there's usually two residents who partake in the interview process. And I wouldn't say that they have the same, like, you know, it's probably a four or five station interview overall, and the resident station is one of them. I wouldn't say that the two residents have a 20% input to the overall final decision. But I mean, you know, the residents are taken into account. And I, I would say that certainly, you know, someone's not getting into the program if if there were significant issues with them and, and the residents that they worked with uh, during their kind of clinical time. So how would you describe the relationship or culture amongst the residents? And I know you've alluded to this before. Yeah, I think as a junior resident in your first year, because you only spend one or two blocks on service, it can be hard to build those relationships just because you spend 11 months of the year working with other services and you're kind of green to the program and you might not know people on a personal level. But after two years, kind of where I'm at now, you spend enough days, like one day a week doing academic half day and you kind of lose that slight intimidation factor of being the new person in the group. I would say everyone in our program is very approachable. Uh, when problems come up with scheduling or yeah, scheduling about vacations or call shifts or academic responsibilities, which they inevitably do, they almost always get resolved amicably. Someone's willing to cover uh, another person because I think in a, a busy program with enough moving parts, you're going to always have those issues come up. And I think the uh, the feeling or the culture in our group is that you help someone out because you, you expect that you're going to need someone to cover you when you have a, a conflict or, or something else. So it's a really supportive group. I would say prior to COVID, our residents would get together, at least a part of the group would get together after every academic half day and go for dinner or drinks or snacks or something just to to maintain that kind of social connection. And COVID's made that a bit harder, but but we've got a pretty tight supportive group and, and people with a lot of different interests you know, there's people who do the outdoor stuff, skiing, hiking, etc. There's a couple gamers in our group. There are a couple people who are from different parts of the country, and we have a couple IMGs. So we've got a fairly heterogeneous group of people that um, have come together to be uh, pretty tight knit. That sounds good. And now I'd like to hear a little bit more about the logistics of how residents live. Do most residents own or rent? To be honest, I'd say most residents probably rent. Uh, Vancouver is a very fairly difficult housing market to be a home buyer in. And so I just think by that nature, most people probably rent and most people probably live within within a couple kilometers of Vancouver General. It's not a very big city. And so if you're if you're close to Vancouver General, you're also close to the BC Children's Hospital and you're also close to St. Paul's. Beyond that, the other hospitals are all more than 20 kilometers away, and so they require driving. But, um, you know, being close to those three hospitals covers your bases for probably more than 60% of your rotations as a resident. And are you ever in a situation where you have to go to multiple sites in one day or within one rotation? Or is it generally one site for a particular rotation? 
Um, so for call, as a junior resident, you just covered the emergency, your first call for Vancouver General Hospital, the kind of main site. But the senior residents, they cover eMERGE call for St. Paul's and BC Children's, as well as the University of British Columbia Urgent Care Center. And then they are, they're obviously the senior call coverage for VGH. So they do have to cover multiple sites, and it's not uncommon for them have to, for them to have to go to Children's for a, you know, a dog bite repair and then have to go, have to go to St. Paul's for a necrotizing fasciitis consult in the same night. So the seniors do drive across the city um, quite often, but it is close. It's, you know, that's 10 minutes between each site. And what's the breakdown of residents in terms of people being single, married, or having kids? More are married and dating than not. There's only a couple people who are kind of single. Our program is very supportive and we have a number of residents currently who have had children during their training and obviously it's a negotiation on the individual's part for how much time they feel like they're able to take from their training. But I, I would say that if you spoke with those individuals, they probably would say that they felt supported through their through their uh, maternity, paternity experiences. And what do you like about living in Vancouver? What do I like about living in Vancouver is, well, my friends and family are here. I've spent my whole life here. I love to ski, um, so I spend a lot of time when I can going to Whistler. I I surf, so I go to Tofino, which is a small rural community on Vancouver Island that could be the backdrop on, you know, an amazing postcard. It's a great city for cycling. Like, I, I bike to work a lot of the time. I, you know, I bike just to commute socially and it's pretty temperate. I would say that if you really like seeing blue sky all the time, then it might not be the place for you because probably half the year it's fairly cloudy, but the, the other half of the year it's, it's gorgeous here. So, you know, the, for me, it's the personal connection to the city. It's the, it's the amazing outdoor opportunities here. And then also, also that it's kind of a small, big city. You know, there's a, there's major league sports team, there's everything that I would want to have in a city, uh, but it's not too crazy busy. So that's pretty much most of what I wanted to talk to you about today. Are there any final thoughts that you wanted to leave our listeners with about either your program or the process of choosing a residency? Uh, I would just say that, you know, I think our program is great. It's very well-rounded. We have a strong surgical training program. We've got a strong academic plastic surgery education program, and we've got a great group of people. For me, I chose the UBC program for that reason, but as well because I've got a strong personal connection to the city here. And I, I don't think that for anybody trying to wanting to join a plastic surgery program, I don't think you're going to go wrong. I think you really have to take into account the balance of why one program might be a better training program for you. And maybe if you want to be a, a hand and upper extremity surgeon, that London, Ontario might be the place for you to go. But if at the end of the day, your friends and your family and your partner live on the West Coast, you have to take those things into balance. And I think at the end of the day, all of these Canadian plastic surgery programs that are accredited um, are producing good surgeons. And you certainly, if you want to do plastic surgery, you should rank all of the sites. Great. So the last thing I'll ask of you is to leave our listeners with your favorite plastic surgery related pimping question. <laughs> okay. Um, one of my favorites is one that gets asked often here. And so if 
the skin graft that you're harvesting is 12 one thousandths of an inch. Tell me the thickness of the skin graft in millimeters. It's not even a plastic surgery question as much as a math question. <laughs> That's good. Thank you so much for uh, speaking with me today, Mike. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, no, no problem. Thank you for listening to the Doctority Canada Plastic Surgery Podcast. Never miss an episode by subscribing to our show via your favorite podcast platform and following us on Instagram and Twitter. For more podcast episodes and residency information, check out our website, doctority.co. That's doctority.co. We love feedback from listeners, so please contact us through the website or through social media with your questions and suggestions. At this point, I'd like to give credit to Jenna Stair for founding Doctority and making all of this possible. Anyways, thanks again for listening. See you all next time.